Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Previously on Dying for a Fight. He said, bitch, you're about to get it now. So I proceeded off the train with my mace in my hand. He showed up that day. I never knew who he was. Thought he punched me. And then I noticed there was blood on my fingers. This guy was a straight up Nazi, anti-Semite. You could see the anger and the hatred in him. For basically the entirety of the nine months after the stabbing, I was drunk and high on cocaine. I'm calling everybody. I'm always picking up their phone. Except for Sean. He said all the wrong things to all the wrong people at all the wrong time. But when you fucking needed him, he was there. Every time. He's dead. I don't get to do shit for him. I don't get to pay that back. Before we get started, a warning. This episode contains strong language. Please keep that in mind when choosing when and where to listen. My name is Jeff. I saw your sign and I walked in here. I want to say I'm really, really sorry for your loss. Have you been in touch with the detectives? Have they been in touch with you? Less than a month after Sean had been killed, Laura attended a community meeting at a church with a large auditorium that was mostly packed. Laura had a sign with a picture of Sean that said, Who murdered my son? It caught the attention of the then head of Portland Detectives, Jeff Bell. The only thing I was told is that I will never get my son's clothes back. I won't get his phone back. Do you really think I think that's going to investigate Sean's death? Sean hated the Portland police. It doesn't matter to us. But I don't believe that they're going to investigate. I mean, they have that vehicle. They've not said anything. Laura was skeptical that the police would take Sean's case seriously. But Bell seemed sympathetic. He came up to her in the busy forum and talked with her for over 10 minutes. He mostly just listened to her. But Laura's frustrations went beyond the police response. I don't understand it. Do you know how bad it's been? The right-wingers have come to my home. They've yelled, I'm glad your fag son is dead. They fucking have sent me so many emails, so many messages saying how glad they are. And it's made it worse by the police saying nothing. Because they're, you know, all of them are trying to spin the conspiracies and whatnot because he was an anti-fascist. He was my son. And I didn't have the worst shit said to me, the worst shit done to me. And you guys being silent has hurt so much worse. I am really, really sorry for your loss. I can't even, I mean, I have children of my own. I can't even imagine what this is worse. And it's been made worse by the right-wingers doing what they do. Whatever you think of Sean's politics, Laura is a mother without a clear path towards healing after the death of her son. And when she was being harassed, she pleaded with police to do something. And I really, I want to apologize. Get in touch with me. I will get you some answers. I can't promise they're going to be the answers you want to hear, but I will get you, I will get you some answers. Commander Bell is trying to assure Laura that his detectives are working to solve Sean's case. And he had no answer specifically 
about the harassment she was receiving. For Laura, it all felt personal. Nearly two years after Sean's killing, Laura still doesn't have answers. But we're going to try to get her some. Yes, there have been some developments in that investigation. From something else in Oregon Public Broadcasting, this is The Fault Line, dying for a fight. I'm Sergio Olmos. In 2016, when liberals and far-left radicals in Portland were uniting under a common cause after Trump's election, they hoped to inspire action towards change. It was a surreal moment that had stunned people of all political stripes. And yet almost everyone knew a colossal shift in American politics had just taken place that November. And the people on the left in Portland weren't the only ones inspired to take action. Around 7 a.m., August 17th, 2019, the account of President Trump tweeted, major consideration is being given to label Antifa an organization of terror. The political shift everyone had noticed in 2016 was now glaringly obvious. USA! USA! That same day, a leader in the Proud Boys, a Florida man named Joe Biggs, had come to Portland for a far-right rally called End Domestic Terrorism. They were coming to town from across the country to condemn Antifa. Portland Mayor Ted Wheeler made his feelings about it clear. Mr. Biggs and others saying that they're going to come here, uh, that feeds in to that sense of fear. So I want to be very clear. We do not want him here in my city, period. At its height, it's estimated there were over a thousand people gathered along Portland's waterfront. Joey. What's up? How you doing, man? Good, how you doing? I was surprised you came today. Joey Gibson was there as well. He came in that day despite having just turned himself into the police days earlier for charges related to the Cider Riot brawl on May Day 2019. Producer Ryan Haas asked him that day if his release terms even allowed him to be at the protests. You know, if they told you on your release that you couldn't come. Some of the folks, some of the folks who were Gibson didn't keep a low profile. At one point that day, he was surrounded by anti-fascists. A protester's asking him why he didn't cancel an event after the Mac stabbing. Roughly two years later, it was still a deep wound for Portlanders. He starts to argue whataboutisms with the crowd. But mostly on this day, the left and right were kept as far apart as possible. Businesses shut down. Over 700 officers worked the demonstrations that day. The mayor said the city spent millions of dollars, which Joe Biggs of the Proud Boys celebrated. So we're going to waste his resources today. And we're going to send our message. The mayor talked big, but the end result was the Proud Boys marched through town. In addition to local groups like Patriot Prayer, this rally attracted members of American Guard, a group that the Anti-Defamation League calls hardcore white supremacists. It also drew anti-government militia members from the Oath Keepers and Three Percenters, those militias also participated in the January 6th insurrection at the U.S. Capitol. They shut down part of Portland and wasted city money. 
The police at one point directed the far-right groups across the city bridge. They said it was for everyone's safety. The Proud Boys planted an American flag in the ground like they owned the place. They're going to come over here and desecrate it because they are filthy, commie trash. But that's okay. But we're going to do the right thing because this is motherfucking America. Kept far away by police and barricades, the anti-fascists chanted. Joe Biggs went on to also be indicted for conspiracy and storming the Capitol on January 6th. But a little over a year before the insurrection, before Proud Boys were storming D.C., they were marching freely in Portland. By 2019, the energized feeling on the right that fueled this Proud Boy rally was also leading to more threats. People published home addresses of their enemies online. They exchanged vicious comments on social media. And then on the weekends, they'd see each other face-to-face in the streets. The threats weren't confined to anti-fascists or just the far left. People on the right were also going after much more mainstream liberals like Gregory and Kat McKelvey or anyone who stood in the streets near anti-fascists. We had dead fish at the door. Look it up. Yeah, it's like a mafia thing or some shit. Someone left a dead fish at the McKelvey's home. The message being that they will sleep with the fishes. When something like that happens, what's your reaction? I think these people are fucking losers. Like, if you wanted to, like, really, like, do something to me, I'm not hard to find, right? Now Gregory shrugs it off. But at one point, someone sent him a picture of his parents' house. And it was terrifying. Since then, threats have become part of his life. People like Sean, who took these threats from the far right seriously, told McKelvey's that they needed to arm themselves for self-defense. Or even get a gun. At first, the McKelvey's balked. They were liberals, and they favored gun control. But over time, they changed their minds. Today, they own a gun. While McCalvey's eventually took Sean's advice and got serious about physical protection from the far right, owning a gun didn't protect them from a different problem, one I hear about all the time from activists, the mental fatigue that comes from the harassment on the right and the infighting on the left. A lot of my brain space is people that I thought were supposed to be my friends trying to tear me down. That's most of it. Like, that, that hurts way more than the death threats. Many have criticized Gregory publicly. They've accused him of being involved in protests for personal or political gains. He felt like at times people were more focused on tearing him down than on working together for mutual causes. And Kat McKelvey says that's one of the reasons that they decided to leave Portland for Atlanta in 2018. When we left Portland, it had become so toxic and so difficult for me. If you talk to protesters in Portland long enough, some will tell you that the physical wounds heal, but the psychological scars stay with you. You radicalized them and basically trained a little murderer. That's after the break. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app. 
you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program. In the 1970s, John Todd burst onto the evangelical scene with a shocking tale. He claimed to be a former witch involved in a then unheard of secret organization called the Illuminati and urged Christians to prepare for a violent world takeover. First of all, the number one weapon in everybody's home should be a 12-gauge pump shotgun. Hear the amazing story of one of the originators of the modern-day conspiracy theory. From Magnificent Noise and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Cover Up, The Conspiracy Tapes. It was the second night, I believe, that the house was egged. Two nights after Sean Kellier was killed, Laura was at home grieving. I just heard, bam, 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 and went running out there, and I just see eggs. And then I think maybe it was the third night where people in the white truck with the Trump and the American flag pulled up to my house. They came out and started yelling Antifa fag or something like that. I came out with a gun and I said, I believe in the Second Amendment too, bitches. And they got in their truck so fast and took off. Someone bought Laura a security system. For the first couple nights, people stood guard at her house. But I actually had somebody on dial that I could call if I felt threatened or anything like that. And then they, then somebody had bought me an actual security system. I felt protected and safe and, and supported by my community. Mostly the Sharp community, they, they were the biggest help. They respected if Laura needed to be alone, and they provided what they could. For instance, $400 of Postmates. They helped me out with some money and stuff just because I was a wreck. <laughs> I really shut down... You know, the first year. It, it was awful. I didn't know how to function. I didn't know how to be. My, my whole life was my kids. The Sharps, the skinheads against racial prejudice, could try to keep Laura safe, but they couldn't stop the harassment. They couldn't stop the far right from spreading misinformation online about the killing. Some of the posts about Sean remain up. He was a violent extremist and was involved in a violent extremist movement. Um, and uh, I hope that he gets justice, though. People posted a multi-part series about Sean where they mocked his killing. Do you know where your mommy is? Don't mess with me. I'll break your camera. I'm the real Slim Shady. Don't mess with me, homeboy. They'd play clips from videos where Sean was in the face of right-wingers. This is not some shiny activist. This is an aggressive piece of shit antifa guy. They talked about writings he posted when he was a teenager. Sean signed off on one by saying, kill your boss, kill the cop driving by your house, and burn the whole system down. To be clear, there's no evidence he did or made plans to do any of these things. The people making these attack videos interpreted Sean literally, but Michael Fletcher says that's absurd. This is the kind of kid who he got off on making you take him seriously. Like, how much can I get you to buy, motherfucker? Some of the videos posted on YouTube about Sean about as out there as you might expect. Sean was killed outside the Democratic Party of Oregon's office. With the staff's permission, it was turned into a memorial site in the following days. Sean's friends had left messages in chalk and spray paint. One YouTuber criticizes the messages and then looks into a dumpster on the side of the building. Let's see if they threw away any weapons. 
No, it doesn't look like it. Must have taken all their weapons home. Some of the attacks were directed at Laura and were especially hateful. I'm sorry, yeah, a person died. I can barely call them a person to begin with for the way that you radicalized them and basically trained a little murderer. That's what she did. She trained a fucking murderer and I'm supposed to cry. At the memorial, someone wrote, he deserved it. People placed stickers that said, fuck you, Antifa. One showed a person getting shot in the head. The caption says, headshot Antifa scum. Good night, left side. Several months after Sean's killing, Laura went to an event that a far-right group was holding in order to confront them. I brought food and stuff. I was at Chapman Square across the street. Laura and one friend, an older man who was recovering from a stroke, went. They sat nearby where a group of right-wingers were meeting. I was at my breaking point. I, I had to do something. I, I felt, I, I was tired of feeling helpless and weak and not able to protect myself or my family. How can I bring the humanity of who Sean was to these people, to these disgusting, vile human beings? <laughs> so, and, and so you thought shame? Yes. Was that effective? Yeah, it was very effective. Was it satisfying? That part was not satisfying. After being confronted directly, some people apologized to Laura and stopped posting as much about her and Sean afterwards. But the day wasn't peaceful. A woman on the right goes up to Laura's friend, the man who had a stroke. He's sitting on a bench, and the woman is standing over him yelling. Laura gets between them and keeps her back towards the woman, screaming her out. The woman then pushed her body against Laura, and then Laura turns around and grabs her by the hair. And then she started bumping into me, and I snapped. I took her to the ground, and I did kick her in the head. The two were separated. No one was seriously hurt. I seriously tried not to. I literally went with my back to her. I tried really hard not to. I, I snapped. I saw red, and I just kicked her. That's so good. It really did. It felt so good. <laughs> Laura was at a breaking point. Without a resolution to her son's case and the constant harassment building up, the immediate results that came from violence felt good to her. Laura felt desperate and took a risk confronting the group. It was a gamble, and for her, the bet paid off. According to Laura, the harassment lessened after this day. People seemed to feel ashamed, but each calculated risk can take a bad turn. While no one was seriously injured, the day could have gone much worse. But for Laura, in that moment, there was nothing to lose. The police showed up. They said it was mutual combat, so they didn't arrest me. <laughs> um, so, <laughs> yeah. They weren't going to arrest the mother of Sean Kellier, yeah. People on the right insulted Sean and Laura. But what's really stuck with her is how some people started talking about the case, theorizing, creating narratives about what might have happened and what everyone's motivations were. I took everything that I heard, all these different variations of stories, and I crafted a narrative. It this is Russell Schultz. Schultz was Joey Gibson's right-hand man, one of the men who went with Gibson to Ciderite on May Day and would go on to be indicted for felony riot. He was one of the people posting theories online. It happened to go viral. It wasn't, it wasn't supposed to go viral. What it was, was just a, supposed to be like a, a mind trap to get people to say, hey, no, no, that's wrong. It happened this way. Schultz is saying 
he was speculating, hoping others would then come forward and correct him where he was wrong. Because I liked him. I mean, I, I, I was at odds with him a lot, but I liked him and respected him. He wasn't a bad kid. He's misguided. I had no reason to dislike him. Did you guys fight? No. Almost one time when he pissed me off. Talk me through that. Uh, he was threatening us and shadowing us. And what was this? In downtown Portland. For, for a rally or just? At a rally, yeah. And so I turned around, went after him, and he backed off. And then when he There's a video from January of 2019, less than a year before Sean's death, where Sean and his friends were countering Schultz and the people he was with at Pioneer Courthouse Square. Early in this video, Schultz is getting in Sean's face and telling him Sean's only talking trash because cops are around. The situation devolves. At one point, they're going back and forth, and the people with Russell taunt Sean. They tell him to kiss his friends. Sean's two masculine-presenting friends remove their masks briefly, and he kisses them. So, yeah, you guys want to call me a faggot? I am a faggot. Do something about it. Otherwise, quit being insecure, dumbass men. Get a fucking hobby. Gun range is a great hobby. Go to the gun range more. Why is this your hobby? It's such a dumb hobby. Schultz, later that month, posted a video celebrating getting an anti-fascist to demask. When Schultz says he likes Sean, and that that's why he was publishing these made-up theories, you should know that these far-right groups, like Patriot Prayer, often give sound bites that make them sound reasonable, but they're misleading about how extreme they are. In this case, Schultz and Sean were never friends. They didn't pal around after protests. There's no evidence they liked each other. And the words Schultz was posting were causing turmoil for Laura. Some people on the far right, including Schultz, believed that the anti-fascists were trying to cover up what happened to Sean, that they didn't want the case solved. But even when I pressed him about it, Schultz didn't show any remorse. It was basically wanting to defy them by them, them not wanting anyone to know what happened to him. The same people who made the Eminem joke about Sean and said that Laura raised a terrorist helped spread Schultz's speculation by sharing his post on social media. Police haven't commented on the case, leaving a void where wild rumors grew and far-right groups stepped in to provide their own. Schultz's speculation reinforced his own beliefs about Antifa, with little to no information coming out about the case. Misinformation thrived. The police have remained silent until now. After the break, we talked to Jeff Bell, the man who nearly two years ago told Laura he'd get her answers. Do you ever wonder how celebrities order food? Like, is Sarah Paulson a Diet Coke or a regular Coke girlie? <laughs> Some peasant Coke? No. Or how does Sofia Vergara order a pizza? No, not, no tomatoes. I cannot eat tomatoes. tomatoes? Yes. Are you killed with mushrooms? Not really. Okay. <laughs> if these are the details you need, and I know you do, I have the podcast for you. I'm Jesse Tyler Ferguson, and on my podcast, Dinners on Me, I take some notable friends of mine out to dinners in Los Angeles and New York City. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. That thing was delicious. Portland Police Commander Jeff Bell led the detectives unit when we interviewed him. To get to the office, you pass a small holding cell. Once you reach this door, you see a light he can turn on to indicate he's in an interview. Bell has had a long career in Portland Police. Jonathan Levinson, a producer for this show, interviewed him. How many years have you been with PPP? Uh, I hit 21 in March. How would you characterize the relationship of the Portland Police with 
Portlanders. Has, has it gotten worse in your 20 years, the relationship with Portlanders? I, I, so I have a hard time answering that because in my current position, I don't have a whole lot of contact with citizens directly. When I first started, you know, if you happen to go out to a restaurant on duty, it was really common for the waitress or someone to come up and say, hey, yeah, that couple that just left over there, they already paid for your meal. I mean, things like that would happen. I don't know how much that happens now. It certainly feels like the relationship has deteriorated. That's got to be frustrating. Uh, it, it is, because I think if you're just going from call to call, taking reports, um, it's hard to give that level of customer service that I think we want to give to people, and I think the citizens actually deserve. That was, like, I mean, that was how I met you, was at that Lentz neighborhood meeting. Yes. When you were sort of providing that one-on-one customer service level. Do you remember this is where Belle and Laura spoke. Jonathan asked Belle what he remembered. I mean, she was a grieving mother, and I, I felt like I'm here. I can answer some of her questions. I feel like I should engage her, and that's that's what I did because, again, I I have children. We all have family members. I mean, to lose a loved one is hard. Do you remember any of the specifics from the conversation? Um, you know, one of the specifics I remember was she was really concerned about her son's boots. I, I totally get that. People deserve an explanation of that. She also, uh, at the time, I don't know if you remember, said that there was a few detectives that she had dealt with. One of them was very nice to her. She said another one was, like, she felt was very rude. Yes. Had- Even when an officer doesn't necessarily violate our rules, there is some validity to the fact that that. However you did your job, even if you were following all the rules, this person felt this way. But let's face it, generally when you're interacting with someone who, I mean, you're talking with, about them and it's fresh that their, their, you know, their loved one was killed, um, those interactions aren't always going to be 100% pleasant. I, I know she's pretty disillusioned. She's very frustrated. Yeah. Turning that to that, can, have there been any developments since, uh, since that day or since the the early days of the investigation? So uh, obviously, you know, I can't talk about details of the investigation, but yes, there have been some developments in that investigation. Um, <laughs> all right. <laughs> good. You got everything I need. <laughs> so there have been developments, but nothing that's been released to the public. People in the public are doing their own own sort of detective work, right-wingers that had their theories of what happened. At what point does the Bureau decide, like, hey, maybe we should at least release a little bit of information and squash some of these so harmful I, rumors. Yeah, I, it's one of those things I can't I can't give you a, like a specific answer. It's a balancing act. And yeah, I understand we have seen where people have identified the wrong person uh, in social media and then that person, um, certainly there is some risk to that person or there can be. Um, I mean, there's a, there's a, as a lay person, there's a lot of evidence that certainly seems like, you know, there's two guys that have been accused of this. Jonathan is referring to the two people Laura accused in episode three. We will not be naming them. As Jonathan says, they have not been charged with anything. I think they still live in Portland. Aren't they, aren't they in danger? If, I mean, if they, if they are innocent or if they've been cleared, why not say so? Here's part of the issue. You know, with this case, I guarantee you there is someone, and maybe more than someone, who, who knows who did this. Um, they have not come forward. And, and that is, unfortunately, we still rely on, beyond just video surveillance, beyond physical evidence, beyond what we get out at the scene, we still rely on, on people to tell us what they saw and what they heard. And I think it's safe to say that our relationship with the community that 
you know, he belonged to is, is not a positive relationship. And so some of those folks who know that information have not come forward or have not. Some of that information has come to the investigators third and fourth hand, but you can't use hearsay in court. Just to recap, Jonathan asked Bell, why not clear the people that Laura and others have accused? Having their names linked to this is dangerous. And Bell said he couldn't comment specifically about the people Laura has accused. But he did say that Sean's friends not cooperating is an issue. He doesn't mention the possibility that the suspects might have people in their lives who might know something. He does not comment on the innocence or guilt of the accused or the potential danger they face. Next, Bell began talking about the detectives not having a bias. And another, I think, sticking point in this case in particular, they really don't care about people's race, gender, political leanings, sexual orientation. I mean, they really, really don't. I, 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 I can't express how much they really care about the fact that a human life was taken and, and it is their job to try to figure out what happened and bring some sort of justice to that. There's a couple things there. So it's, it sounds like it's kind of like a chicken and egg thing where this community doesn't trust the police and doesn't want to talk to them. And that makes it hard for you to solve this murder, which makes them not trust the police and not want to talk to you. Chicken and egg, exactly. How do you solve that? I don't know. Isn't it sort of your job? It is. It is. And I don't, I don't know what the answer to that is. I really don't. <laughs> I'll blink first. No, um, that, that's okay. I mean, if I, if, if I knew, I would... Make recommendations. I mean, I don't, yeah, I, I just, I don't know what the answer is. After watching the Bureau for the past year, that seems to be sort of where the institution is as a whole, just like, we don't know what to do next. This, this standoff has developed between protesters and the Bureau, and we've tried everything, and now we're just throwing our hands up. I don't know that we're throwing our hands up. I mean... The case is still being worked. I didn't mean just with this case. I meant sort of, you know, with in general, like sort of the, this this standoff that is this like the chicken and egg problem. The community doesn't trust the police, which makes it harder for the police to do their job. Yeah, I, I, my personal belief is relationships with people. Again, I, I don't know how we do that because our workload has gone up and our numbers have gone down. I mean, I, I've got seventy nine detectives right now. I, I want to say we were well over a hundred when I got hired twenty one years ago, and our crime rates higher now. I believe at least in terms of, you know, violent crime than it was then. We're not investigating every, you know, burglary. We're, we're investigating just a fraction of those sorts of crimes. I mean, we will always, at least I believe, we will always investigate homicides. We will always investigate child abuse. We will always investigate sexual assaults. But, you know, a lot of that other stuff we're not investigating because we don't have the people. And so it's hard to break people away to actually build those relationships when, they just don't have the time. Yeah, I, it's, it's not coming across because it's audio, but I mean, I can see that you're frustrated. Yeah. And, and you talked about the public has to trust you, and, and I, I see the frustration in, in, on your face, but you have to earn that trust too, right? Yeah. Yeah, the frustration comes from the way we earn trust is we are entirely transparent with what we do, but that makes us ineffective at what we do. Yeah. I mean, in terms of homicide investigations, I want folks to trust that we have the best interests of the investigation at heart. And what that means is we are trying to find answers for loved ones, for those who are left behind. And there are some key pieces of this investigation that we're talking about here that 
make it not nearly as simple as it appears. We've talked about how she became disillusioned with the police and how just in general that, that, that cycle with the community works. And that's also how he became radicalized or turned anti-police was he had a bad interaction with them. And a lot of the cops knew who he was. I don't know what kind of relationship the officers that had regular contact with him had, but I can almost guarantee you that the homicide investigators had zero relationship with him. People look at the Portland Police Bureau as this kind of monolithic entity, and we are made up of individuals just like, you know, you can't say every Portlander is X, Y, or Z. I can almost guarantee you that these investigators had no clue who he was before. Um, anything new you want to share about the case before we get go on to the next part? There are some things I would love to share, but... <laughs> I'd catch you with your guard down. Yeah, I um, you, you have to try. By the time this episode has been released, it'll be around two years since Sean's death. Laura had long calls with the deputy district attorneys on her case. She's hung up on them. She's been stood up by them. She's been told they need more to go on to make an arrest. We recorded this interview with Bell in May of 2021. As of now, the developments in this case haven't resulted in any arrests. Laura's adamant there's more to go on, but Bell doesn't give that impression. From Bell's perspective, the problem is that the Portland police don't have enough police officers and detectives to form better relationships. And in terms of this case, Bell's explicit, pointing to Sean's friends not cooperating as one reason why this case is unsolved. Bell is frustrated, Laura's beyond frustrated, and the case is stuck. It's not clear how this case will move forward. But in the absence of solutions, things still change. The story isn't over. Sean's case is not as simplistic as Schultz or Bell make it out to be. Almost everyone in my office has some prosecution experience, and we've worked a lot within these systems. And we'll think at this point in particular, this is very atypical. There are people that have answers. The three dots appeared and then it disappeared, so he was replying. Nice. Oh, three dots are back. He's replying. But answers aside, this story shows us that violence has a ripple effect. Like an earthquake, it has aftershocks, and people keep getting hurt. That's the tragic part of it. You have to live with the consequences afterwards, and you never, never know what they're going to be. In the summer of 2020, Portlanders took to the streets like never before. Some were out there for racial justice. Some wanted to defund the police. Some wanted revolution. And one person would turn to violence, unaware of the consequences. The only thing that went my head is, I thought of his family, I thought of his mom. She's gonna get that call. That's next week on The Fault Line, Dying for a Fight. Dying for a Fight is a co-production between Something Else and OPB. The show was reported and produced by Grant Irving, Ryan Hass, and me, Sergio Olmos. We also had reporting and production help from Jonathan Levinson and Conrad Wilson. This episode was written by Grant Irving and me, Sergio Olmos. Our editors are Anna Griffin and Lizzie Jacobs. Fact-checking by Matt Giles. Our theme music is by Deli Girls. You can check out their music at delegirls.bandcamp.com. Music by Nolan Schneider and Pete G.K. Sam Baer is our sound engineer. Executive producers for Dying for a Fight are Lizzie Jacobs, Tom Koenig, and Anna Griffin. Thanks also to Steve Ackerman, Jen Mystery, and E.K. Ekwatola. 
We had production assistance from Bashak Artin and Mia Warren. Oregon Public Broadcasting storytelling and podcasts from all across the Northwest happen only with the support of our members. Help keep access to this critical news and information freely available to everyone by joining OPB as a monthly sustainer or with a single contribution at opb.org pod. Thank you.